The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Explorers. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. Last time, we time-traveled back to Tudor, England, and woke up in a country cottage. We rose from our rushes, got washed, kind of, and then got dressed. Now, we're ready to tackle the rest of our day. Tuck any flyaways into your head covering and roll up those linen sleeves, my friend, because things are about to get very busy. Grab a trowel and a can-do attitude. Let's go traveling. Before we really get going with our morning, we've got to talk properly about our social ladder. We've already touched on how our social status affects our houses, beds, and clothes, and it will define so much of what we can expect from our day. We tutors believe firmly in a strict social hierarchy. People, plants, and animals all have a rung on the ladder that defines everyone's place. Much of what determines which rung we land on depends on how much land we own. In the decades leading up to the 1530s, which is where we're time-traveling currently, the Catholic Church and the monarch were the richest and most powerful amongst us. They had far more land than anyone else. But when Henry VIII breaks from the Pope and founds his own Church of England, all that starts to change. He takes control of much of the church's property through the dissolution of monasteries. So now, the king is far and away the country's richest and most powerful person. Next comes the aristocracy, those who hold titles as peers of the realm. We're talking about dukes, barons, marquises, etc. These are the people who surround the monarch as part of the Tudor court, which has its own competitive and complex hierarchy. These families have large estates, probably a townhouse in London, and multiple households with hundreds of staff. These are the powerful political movers and shakers. Down the ladder from them are the gentry. Their land holdings are smaller, generally speaking, and more concentrated in a certain region, but they're still pretty high up on the social scale. Technically, one can only count herself a gentlewoman if her family has the right to bear a coat of arms, but really, it's anyone who can afford not to toil for a living, instead paying others to toil for them. Being gentry is all about numbers, a certain number of pounds, servants, types of clothing, and your ability to entertain on a certain scale. This is often who we picture when we think of Tudor England, but this is a minuscule slice of Tudor society. Most of us are living far more simply than all that. Next come yeomen. They often rent their land from those above them on the social scale, though sometimes they own it outright, and they farm it all themselves. They're sometimes richer than the gentlemen around them, but because they work their land themselves, they don't really fit the genteel brand. Yeomen are, in essence, prosperous farmers, with four or five room houses and hired help for the farm. 
Below them comes what is perhaps the largest slice of the Tudor social pie, husbandmen. They farm rented lands on a much smaller scale than yeomen and don't usually hire outside help. Most of the labor is done by the family. Next come laborers, who don't own any land and hire themselves out for a daily wage. This is often a hand-to-mouth existence, and it can be precarious. But you have an even less fortunate group below this one. Vagrants and beggars, and those who can't find any work at all. We tutors will go to long and desperate lengths to make sure we don't end up as one of these. For our urban population, you've got a few other categories, though they pretty much run parallel to the ones we've just covered. There are citizens who are on the same level as yeomen. Merchants are the most affluent among these. They employ apprentices and servants. Some of the richest even kick it with the landed elite, although they're not always seen as their social equals. Then come craftsmen, who are aided in their work by apprentices and family members. Laborers come next, paid by the day and often struggling to make ends meet. Then, of course, you have the truly poor. As we explored when we talked about our clothing, there are true monetary gulfs between some of these classes. There are also a lot of notions floating around about what one station says about them and what they are allowed to do. Tudor England is a place that wants everything in its proper position and gets upset when someone tries to dress or act above their station. We see this in the sumptuary laws we talked about earlier, the laws that dictate very clearly who is allowed to wear what. In Elizabeth I's time, if you aren't a member of the gentry and you decide to swan around in, say, a fur-lined cloak, you're going to be seriously rocking the apple cart. Social status is important in this world, and the clearest way to showcase a prosperous position is to splash out some coin. We tutors are all about more is more. We decorate lavishly, dress to impress, and entertain with as much abandon as we can handle. Tutor ladies must know everyone's place in the order of things, including theirs, and know how to make the most of it. Now that that's clear, let's get going with the rest of our day. Are we eating a hearty breakfast to fortify ourselves? Yes, but only pregnant women and children eat first thing in the morning. Our first meal is less a good start than a break in the middle of a very long day. It is a Tudor truth universally acknowledged that no matter your station or situation, a woman's day is never idle. She has a lot to do. John Fitzherbert, in his Book of Husbandry, assures us that Thou shalt have so many things to do, that thou shalt not know where is best to begin. He gives us Tudor ladies quite the to-do list. We will start by sweeping the house and tidying the dashboard, then go on to milk the cows, pouring all the milk we just procured through some cloth to strain out any hair or dirt. Then we'll wake the children and get them dressed, and only then will we make breakfast. Yep, we'll be making the meals as well as eating them. Most of our work will be centered around the house. Here's Ruth. Women's work was everything to do with the yard, basically. The area around the house, in the house and around the house, was considered to be primarily female responsibilities. Everything far away from the house was primarily male responsibility. That's the simplest way of doing it. I hope you like cleaning, because this task will be vigorous and constant. As with personal hygiene, we have this notion that Tudor standards of cleanliness leave a lot to be desired. Not true. 
The idea that cleanliness is next to godliness is alive and ever-present in this era. We might not understand exactly why dirty counters and grubby clothes make us ill, but we are very aware they have the power to do so. But to wash things properly, first you have to organize your water supply. We don't have running water indoors as a rule, and so we will have to pull it up from a well. Then we'll get down to scouring. Our basic supplies will be horsetails, a type of plant much like rushes, river sand, and that old, trusty cleaning agent, hot water. Our wooden bowls and utensils, meal prep surfaces, even any rusty armor. It all needs to be given a very good scrub. Unfortunately, vermin aren't something we can just scrub away. But we'll have some handy herbs in our kitchen garden that will help keep away the creepy crawlies. Flea bane will help to keep the fleas out of our bedding, while some household manuals recommend wormwood for banishing all sorts of unwanted borders. Thomas Tusser gives us a little rhyme to remember this by. Where chamber is swept and wormwood is strewn, no flea dare abide to be known. Just brush your floor clean and then sprinkle some wormwood over it. The rats definitely won't like it. But then again, likely neither will you. The good thing about pretty much all of our work is that we don't have to do it all at once. We can tackle it in stages, leaving off from one thing to attend to something else around the house. Women work primarily working within this small geographical space, um, and I presume that's because of the need to combine with childcare. Um, jobs themselves could often be broken down and sort of interwoven. A lot of these this sort of traditional female stuff have a lot of small processes, and you can interweave them. Between, nipping from one job to the next. So if you think cheese making and butter making, that's a dairying, that's a female. Um, you can do, you can break it down into like, okay, so there's the milking. Okay, that's a, that's a separate thing. And then you can put the milk to one side and go and do something else. And then you come back once the, uh, and you can let it sort of separate it. So now you can strain off the cream. There's another little five minute operation, go and do something else. You might come back then and do the churning of the butter. And then once that's done, put it to one side and go off and do something else. And meanwhile, you put the fire on to heat the milk, ready to put the rennet in to make the cheese. And then you can leave that then to set while you go off and do something else. <laughs> and so on and so forth. It would be the same with the brewing or the baking, feeding the chickens, keeping an eye on the pigs. You're busily interleaving lots and lots of little jobs, including changing nappies and, um, you know, wiping noses and getting the dinner on. Some of the most important tasks around the farm are almost always done by the ladies. Sort of broadly, the areas that women took responsibility were laundry, dairy, house care, child care, gardening. There's other things, of course, but those are perhaps the main five activities that, that, that are considered to be women's work. We'll also be making two staples of our diet, ale and bread. Our ale and bread come from the same basic ingredients, water, grains, and wild yeast floating around on the air. Our ability to make them, and make them well, is central to our family's well-being. The vast majority of tutors eat around two pounds of bread and drink eight pints of ale in a day. They account for about 80% of our caloric intake, so those fields full of grains are a big part of what sustains us. If you've got a gluten issue, this era's going to be a tough slog. 
Even in bread, we see class distinctions. Which bread you can afford to put on your table says something about your social place. At the bottom of the bread rung is horse bread made of ground-up peas. It's so rough that it's mostly, you guessed it, fed to the horses. But if we're in dire straits, it'll keep us going. Maslin bread is a good worker's staple made of wheat and rye. It's a lot denser than what you're probably picturing, and it's going to take a hearty constitution to chew through. The very finest is a white bread called manchet bread. It's time-consuming to make and less filling than most other loaves, though, so you're only likely to find it on the finest tables or as a special treat. Most of us tutors don't have ovens at home, which means we have to take our bread dough to the local baker for cooking or use a communal oven. Just one more thing we'll have to fit into our day. Everyone's drinking ale in Tudor England. Children, women, and men of all ages. We do this because wine is expensive, tea and coffee haven't really taken root yet, and our water supply often ties our intestines in knots. The process of making ale involves boiling the water, making it safer to drink than what you would scoop up from the nearby stream. We're drinking it pretty much all day, every day. One wonders if we're low-key drunk a lot of the time, but Tudor beer comes in all different strengths. The stuff we're imbibing is much weaker than what we're used to in our modern era for the most part, and it's sweeter. It also contains a decent number of vitamins, so in moderation, it's a good source of the things our bodies need. The process of brewing takes weeks. We have to capture wild yeast to begin with, sprout our grain to transform its starches into sugars, pour some water over it, and give the yeast time to turn the sugar into alcohol. If our equipment isn't sparkling clean, our ale might end up sour and undrinkable, which would be a big-time calamity. We're brewing enough ale for both our family and any workers on our property to consume. It takes about six acres of wheat and barley a year to make a daily ration of bread and ale for just one person. This in a time when one in four harvests fail. No wonder we farmers pray so much. The problem with our English ale is that it doesn't last long. It starts to spoil after about a week or two, so it needs to be made regularly and in small batches. That's one of the reasons why beer starts taking off. In the Tudor era, ale and beer are not at all the same thing. Ale is flavored with something called groot, essentially a mixture of whatever herbs we have around, from heath to yarrow to juniper. Beer is made with the addition of hops, those pinecone-shaped fragrant buds that come from the plant called Humulus lupulus, a cousin of the cannabis plant. Hops serve as a bittering agent, but also a preservative, which means that beer lasts longer than ale and it can be taken on longer journeys. Hops make their way over to England from the lowlands, and while England is one of the last places in and around Europe to really take a shine to beer, we have English recipes for it as early as 1509. But still, most women are making ale at home for their families, and it can pay to be a talented alewife or brewster. There are women who make a bit of money selling their surplus ale on the side. But there are strict rules regulating the industry. Anyone who wants to sell their ale is allowed to, but they have to have it tested first by the local ale conner. If they find it too weak or in some way deficient, they can deny you the right to sell, fix on it a pretty low price, or even force you to tip it out into the field behind the hayloft. Let's say the local ale conner doesn't like you because you spurned him for, oh, I don't know, 
Tom Hiddleston. Because Tom and a codpiece is something I can get all the way behind. Know what I'm saying? Might he use his Ale Connor power to make it hard for you to make a living? You betcha. From June to September, when the grass is at its best and most plentiful, dairying is going to take up a huge chunk of our time. We're not just interested in the milk, but in making cheese and butter, things that will help to keep us going through winter. This is why keeping things clean is so vital. As our friend, Gervais Markham, pointedly reminds us, the dairy has to be so clean that a prince's bedchamber must not exceed it. We'll assiduously clean out all dairy equipment every time we use it, which is gonna be often. We'll get out our salt and scrub our equipment with it using a damp cloth. Next will come a good dousing with some boiling water. And then we'll leave it all out in the sun, whose UV light will kill any bacteria that might still be hanging around. We tutors might not understand why this process works, but we know that it does, and that neglecting it will turn our butter bad. Cream is a luxury that we will only enjoy on special occasions. Mostly, we'll be churning out cheese and butter, which, of course, we will be churning by hand. We'll have to work some salt through it to make sure it keeps, because yeah, we don't have refrigeration, so your arms are going to be getting a workout. It's worth it, though, because making great dairy products is something a woman can come to be well-known and respected for. It isn't just a matter of pride. Dairying can be made into a lucrative side hustle. Traditionally, any money made from a family's dairy is a woman's to do with as she pleases. For those households that outsource their cheese making, a good dairy manager is worth her weight in high-quality cheddar. In 1566, Christabel Allman will make 20 shillings a year running the dairy at Woolerton Hall in Nottinghamshire. Pretty good coin for a woman of the era. That is why many young women aspire to become dairymaids, working under the guidance of such a dairywoman. If you were an ambitious young woman, you would really be looking for uh, uh, farms that did dairying, because a dairymaid was the very best female-paid farming position. Dairymaids could, could charge considerably more than any other sort of a maid. It required more skill. That's it for now. Next time, we'll continue down our laundry list of duties and explore what kinds of work we might be doing outside the domestic sphere. We'll find out what enterprising women might do to carve out a living and what kinds of rights we might enjoy. Or, you know, not. Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please tell a friend about it or leave it a review wherever you listen. It's only the work of a moment, and it really helps new listeners find it. I'd like to thank some of my patrons who really help keep the show going. My newest pirate queens, Gabrielle, Delaney, and James. My boss ladies, Amy, Annabelle, Bethany, Bronwyn, Elizabeth, Grace, Jessica, Sophie, and Julian, Melissa, Michelle, Monique, Nuria, Rebecca, Sarah, and Tanya. My adventuresses, Alexis, Anna, Carlos, Helena, Iris, Jessica, Amber, Kelly, 
Lizzie, Phil, Samantha, and Stephanie. My warrior queens, Lori and Avery. My imperial empress, Faye and Whimsy Soapworks. And my lady pharaohs, the three wonderful Courtneys, and my newest, Mary Kay. Patrons get early access to episodes, as well as exclusive bonus episodes, full interviews, contests, and more. Right now, you'll find all of chapters 6 through 9 of this Everyday Life series live and ready for your listening pleasure. To find out more, just go to my website. Much thanks to Ruth Goodman for time-traveling with us. You can find links to her work in this episode's show notes, which you'll find at my website, theexplorespodcast.com. You can find me over on Instagram at The Explorers Podcast, where I post lots of fun visuals each week. Twitter at The Explorers Pod and Facebook as well. Music from this episode comes courtesy of guitarist John Sales. Thanks to Mr. Explorers, as always, for my theme music and logo, and to the following legends for their vocal stylings. Neil Hobson, Jim DiBartolo, and Chris at Naturally RP. 